You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And again, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Originally, I'd intended for us to look at John 1.14 today, where we are told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a very traditional Christmas text, encapsulating the incarnation, Jesus' divinity, and so much more. I was excited to dive into the rich theology of verse 14, but as I started looking at it and considering those great propositional truths, it became clear that verse 14 is the climax to an argument. It's the destination for a flow of thought that John starts in verse 1, where he declares, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then argues for the validity of that statement all the way down through verse 14 when he picks up that language again, calling Jesus the Word. So verses 1 and 14 present the divinity and the incarnation of Christ, while verses 2 through 13 fill in the details. It's within those details, if you back up just a few verses from the climax, you have this deafening commentary on those who reject the Christ of Christmas, the divine word of God who became flesh and dwelled among us. And as I started to look at those verses, I felt compelled to change lanes and focus on them this year for Christmas. After all, it's one thing to get Christmas right. And we most certainly want to do that. We need to get Christmas right. But it's also important for us not to get it wrong. And verses 11 through 13 tell us exactly what it looks like to truly ruin Christmas. So please follow along as I read our text for today. John 1, starting in verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, the eternal Word of God, the Spirit of God, says, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our culture's version of Christmas is full of colorful characters. We have mythical heroes that range from talking snowmen to flying reindeer with a head cold. We have it all. But we also have iconic Christmas villains, anti-heroes like Ebenezer Scrooge and the Grinch, misunderstood grumpy pants who can't help themselves but ruin the festivities of those around them, proving that misery does love company. They do their best to make everyone else around them miserable during their favorite holiday. Depressed loners make for the best Christmas villains. Because, according to our culture, 
Robbing the joy of a family-focused holiday is the worst thing there is. It's worse than a breakup on Valentine's Day. It's worse than kissing the mirror on New Year's. There is nothing worse than to rob the joy from another person at Christmas time. And to them, it's the only way to truly ruin Christmas. After all, the world loves Christmas. It loves Christmas. How many of you get the Hallmark Channel? Yeah, we do for this month, and that's it. <laughs> because people love Christmas, but here's the problem. They don't love Christ. I have yet to see a Hallmark movie that mentioned Christ. They don't. Because the world loves Christmas, but they don't love the Christ of Christmas. They love the blessings of family, friends, and presents, but they don't love the giver of life, love, and joy. If we aren't careful, we'll find ourselves falling into that same line of thinking, and our priorities will start to look more like the world and, and less like our saviors. And before we know it, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we're the good guys when the Bible paints a very different picture. So today we're gonna to look at three ways to ruin Christmas. The world has its Scrooges and its Grinches, but what does the Bible say about the spiritual anti-heroes of Christmas? What do the spiritual downers do to pour water on the true spirit of Christmas? We have three verses and three problems. First of all, if you wanna ruin Christmas, to ruin Christmas, simply reject God's gift. That's the first thing. Reject God's gift. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Literally, he came to his own, could be translated and should be translated, he came to his own property, or he came to his own home. His own home. The obvious question is, where is home? for the Son of God? And the answer is simply the people of God, the covenant possession of God himself, the Jews. They were his home, they were his people. And the rejection of verse 11 is a very personal rejection because the Messiah came home and he should have been welcomed. He should have been embraced with open arms, but instead he was thrown out onto the street. On the one hand, that's shocking because it's entirely inappropriate and hard to imagine a man being thrown out of his own home. But at the same time, it's not too surprising when you remember the people's track record. All throughout their history, they have rejected God's plans for their own. They have turned away godly men. They have killed godly men in the name of God and then they listen to the counsel of their own hearts and they've done that from the very beginning. God himself said so through the prophets they killed. In Jeremiah 7, he says, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, so going all the way back to then, back to the Exodus, he says, from that day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And that's saying something, considering that their fathers were idol worshipers and God haters. He says they are worse because I have persistently pursued them and they have constantly turned me away. 
He says, ever since the exodus out of Egypt, I have been trying to get your attention and you have flat out refused to listen. In Isaiah 65, he says, I spread out my hands all the day to the rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. That's bad. He says, look, I'm here and my arms are open to receive my people, but instead, they want to do their own thing. They want to they go their own way and they want to follow their own hearts into the unknown. So you have this faithful but angry God who has been rejected by his own people over and over and over again. Fast forward to Acts 7 and his people are at it again. Living in covenant disobedience and yet completely unaware that the new covenant has come and has been activated. They kill Stephen, the first Christian martyr in a fit of rage. But before they do, here's what he had to say to the Jewish leaders. He yelled, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. How's that for winning friends and influencing people? But it's true. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that is Christ, the word in flesh. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. What an indictment. And yet every word is true. Is it any wonder that the Son of God came to his own and his own people did not receive him. After century, after century, after century of rejection, the Son of God finally came home and his own people wanted nothing to do with him. That much is clear, not only in this verse, but throughout the rest of John and the other Gospels. When Jesus first started preaching, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that message was strictly for the Jews. It wasn't until they rejected him outright. Only then did his message and his method change. When they started to claim that his power was demonic, that was the final straw. So Jesus no longer preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He no longer limited his message to the Jews. Instead, he started speaking in parables to the masses. And he started offering eternal life to anyone who would come after him who would receive him and receive his message. So while the word became flesh and came home to his own people, this gift, friends, is not limited to them. And God has given us his son, and the offer is on the table for whosoever will accept him. Whether you are a law-abiding Jew or a pig-eating Gentile, the gift is yours to receive. The question is, will you receive this Savior, the light of the world, or will you reject him like his own people? When I was a kid, my family would drive up to Indianapolis on Christmas Eve to celebrate with my dad's side of the family. I remember one year I saw a big box with my name on it under the tree, and I was so excited because my grandpa was an Avon man, and so typically I would get soap on a rope. But this year, someone had gotten me something big. 
something fun, something exciting, something I didn't have to use in the shower. I was thrilled. I was so excited. So when the time finally came, I I tore into the box with unbridled anticipation to discover the classic Hasbro game, Operation. The one where you have to tweeze objects out of the patient without hitting the sides or, or a buzzer will go off. It's a fun game. It's a great Christmas gift. There was only one problem. I already had it. In an instant, my uncontrollable joy deflated into visible disappointment. And unfortunately, I sighed the words, oh man, I already have this game. Trust me, not a shining moment for little Hans Kaufman. My parents were furious, and I quickly got an earful about how to receive a gift at Christmas. That it doesn't matter whether or not I have the game, I need to thank the person who gave it and receive it with joy. I could tell that they were incredibly embarrassed by my selfishness and my total disregard for such a generous gift. But what really ruined Christmas, for me at least, was the promise of a spanking when we got home. (laughs) That meant for a long drive back in the dark. This was long before child safety laws, and I remember vividly laying across the floor of of the back of that 1987 Monte Carlo and thinking to myself, my life is over. Why didn't I just say thank you? Why didn't I just receive the gift and then sell it later on? I spent the rest of the drive praying that my parents would forget about the spanking, wondering if they would, if they would wake me up if I pretended to fall asleep. Unfortunately, my heart was beating too fast and I couldn't pull it off. So I just laid there, drowning in my parents' quiet disappointment for over an hour, waiting to be punished for my rejection. They were right, by the way. I needed to learn that lesson. That it's never okay to act like that when someone gives you a gift. Imagine, imagine how our Heavenly Father feels when we reject the greatest gift of all, Himself through His Son. Long ago in Persia, there ruled a wise and good king who loved his people. He wanted to know how they lived and he wanted to know their hardships firsthand. Often he would dress in their clothes and he would go out and pretend to be a working man or a beggar and he would visit the homes of the poor. No one he visited had a clue that he was actually their king. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food that the poor man ate He spoke cheerful and kind words to him to enliven his spirits, and then he left. Later, he visited the poor man again, but this time he revealed who he was by saying, I am your king. And the king thought in that moment that the man would surely ask for a small gift or a favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace and your glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food that I ate and you brought gladness to my heart. To others, you have given your rich gifts, but to me, you have given me something better. You have given me yourself. Henry Scougal, the 17th century Scottish minister, said, God hath long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. But when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. 
the Bible calls Jesus the king of glory. And it refers to him as the unspeakable gift. Listen, if you want to ruin Christmas, it's simple. All you have to do is reject God's gift. The greatest gift of all, the gift of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That's number one. But what exactly does it mean then to receive Jesus? And what are those who reject him? What are they missing out on? That brings us to number two. To ruin Christmas, simply refuse to believe. Refuse to believe. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a glorious verse, especially in light of the previous verse. Verse 11 is sad and depressing and dark. It is full of rejection, but verse 12 is bright and hopeful. It's full of reception. It is the opposite of verse 11. The adversative conjunction at the beginning of the verse marks the turning point, that little word, but, but. Despite the vast number of those who have rejected Jesus, everyone who receives him will become a child of God. And to receive him is to believe in his name. That is an interesting expression. When we think of names, we typically think of labels. But they can also refer to more than that. They can refer to a man's reputation or a man's achievements. We often say things like, he has a good name, or he's making a name for himself. In this case, the the label isn't even mentioned. The name Jesus isn't anywhere to be found. So believing in his name must be a reference to his person, his character, his composition. It's a belief that says Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. He is the Savior of man. He is the Redeemer of sinners. So I will acknowledge him. I will trust in him and I will confess him with a thankful heart. To believe in his name is to wholeheartedly accept him for who he is, that he is the God-man incarnate. He is the word made flesh. However, there is a prerequisite to receiving by believing. You can't believe in something you don't know. You can't. You can't believe in someone you've never met. You have to know this Christ in order to believe in him. That is why it is so important for us to make sure that we are clear in our presentation of the gospel. And it's vitally important that we know the gospel ourselves, that there is no question at all in our minds what the truth of God actually is. Jonathan Whitfield was preaching to coal miners in England and he asked one man, he said, what do you believe? Well, said the man, I believe the same as the church. And what does the church believe? Well, they believe the same as me. (laughs) Seeing that he was getting nowhere, Whitfield asked, and what is it that you both believe? To which the man paused, he scratched his head for a moment, and he replied, well, I suppose we believe the same thing. (laughs) You see, it all hinges upon what we actually, truly know in our hearts, what we truly believe. It's not enough to simply associate with the beliefs of a church or the beliefs of a family member. We must know what we believe. Do we believe John 1.14? 
that the word became flesh and it dwelled among us. Have we seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth? If so, that changes things. The glory of God changes everything because there is no middle ground when it comes to Christ. You will either believe he is who he says he is or you won't. You will either accept him and take him at his word or you won't. He is either right or wrong. He cannot be both. And the call to believe in him is the call to complete devotion and trust in this Savior. You can't kind of believe or meet God in the middle on this one. Listen to this recommendation from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. I love what he has to say. He said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. You catch that? He says, either believe God to the fullest or don't believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edges of the water is poor faith at best. It is little better than a dry land faith, and it is not good for much. End quote. Friend, I hope your belief is up to the hilt. I hope that you believe and you trust this book with your very life. I hope that you rely on your Savior for everything because everyone who receives him by believing in him is given the greatest privilege of all and that you are given the right to be called a child of God, of God himself. In other words, God himself adopts you into his divine family. Yes, he only has one legitimate son. That won't change but he now sees you as a valued member of his household and he gives you all the privileges of sonship. Imagine that. He treats you as his child because you no longer belong to the world and sin. You belong to him and he has promised to take care of you. Notice who pulls the strings in this verse. It says he gave the right to become children of God. He gave it. That should encourage all of us today. We should find great comfort in that, knowing that it's not up to us. This is something that God freely gives. During one of Napoleon's military campaigns, he he accidentally dropped the reins of his horse in order to read a few papers. And when the horse reared up and nearly threw him off, a corporal, a very lowly soldier, leaped forward and caught the bridle of the emperor's horse. And within a matter of seconds, the animal was under control. Napoleon turned to the corporal and he said, thank you, captain. Recognizing his promotion, the soldier asked, of what company, sire? Well, of my guards, replied Napoleon. In an instant, that young man threw aside his musket and he walked across the field towards the headquarters of the general staff, tearing off his corporal's stripes as he went. And as he took his place among the emperor's officers, someone asked him, what are you doing here? To which he replied that the captain of the guards was his new title and his new position. And they said, well, on whose authority? He said, by the authority of the emperor. You see, our status depends on the authority of the one in charge. If a friend had called him captain, nothing would have changed. They would have had a few laughs and he would have gone back to his corporal's post. In the same way, our standing before God depends 
on what he says. It depends on the highest authority of the universe. It depends on a word given by our King of kings and Lord of lords. When we receive him, he gives us this privilege of sonship. And the only proper response is to fall in line and assume the rights and the responsibilities of the task, of our rank. Listen, there there are worse things that you can do this Christmas than be a Scrooge and steal from the poor. There are worse things than being a Grinch and stealing everyone's Christmas trees or everyone's inflatables if you live in Smoky Point. (laughs) It's true. The worst thing you can do is reject God's gift and refuse to believe in his son. You must believe the gospel, the good news of Christmas, that the eternal God of heaven came to earth, that he took on human flesh, a human body with all of the pains and challenges that come with that. Think about it. He became a baby and he lived among us. He dwelled among us. Technically, the word that is used there is the word for tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Think about that. This God became a man. And then he lived a perfect life. He obeyed all of his own rules. He he submitted himself to the Father in everything. As a man, as the God-man to then go to the cross and die in the place of sinners so that anyone who would turn to that cross in faith, who would place their faith in him, their sins would be paid for. They would be forgiven. It would be as though, as though he, stood on, he stood in the middle between sinners and God and he took sinners in one hand, he took God in the other and he reconciled the two. And he did that on the cross. He did that for us so that whosoever would believe in him for salvation would be saved. He took our punishment, the punishment that we deserve, the punishment that we have earned, every cosmic crime that we have ever committed against God. Jesus paid for it in full. He took that punishment upon himself in order for us to then receive his righteousness, his perfect life, his perfect track record, so that that could be attributed to our account. So now when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. What a glorious thought. What an incredible truth. And it is true for anyone, anyone who believes in this Savior, who repents of their sin, the sin that nailed him to the cross, the sin that he paid for. If we repent of that sin, turn away from it, and turn to this Savior in belief, in trust, in love, then we will be saved. We will be listed among the redeemed. Listen, I can't, I can't assume that everyone here has believed and received this Savior for themselves. If you don't know, or if you aren't sure, or if you believe just a little, not to the hilt, then now is the time to truly know this Jesus and make him known. Whatever happens this Christmas, don't reject God's gift. Don't refuse to believe in his son. Jesus says, come to me. And he promises that everyone who does, everyone who comes to him, will be accepted by him. He will never throw anyone out. Unlike so many who have rejected him, he will never reject you. If you come to him with a humble faith, 
If you come to Jesus with empty hands and a repentant heart, he will give you rest. He will take on all of your sin and all of your death and he will replace it with righteousness and life. He loves sinners. He is the friend of sinners. He loves to save sinners. He came to seek and to save that which is lost and he will save you if you will receive him. That's all you have to do is simply receive all of him. He will save all of you if you receive all of him. That is number two. Don't ruin Christmas this year. Don't reject God's gift. Don't refuse to believe. Rather, accept the gift and throw yourself into the arms of this Savior, this King, this Lord. But we have one final verse left here. One final warning. If we're going to get Christmas right and have the best holiday ever, we need to look out for this last trap. And this one is especially important for those who know the truth. If you want to ruin Christmas this year, simply receive the credit. Receive the credit. Who are the believing, receiving ones who have been given this privilege of divine adoption? Look at verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here John introduces us to this glorious theme of being born again. Jesus will unpack this theme in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. It's a vivid picture of total reliance on God, where he is the one who gives birth to you in a very real and spiritual way. But before we can talk about the wonder and the possibilities that accompany a new birth, we need to first look at the ways in which a person cannot be born again. This verse gives us three. To begin with, we are not saved by a state. A state. He says, not of blood. A common mistake when it comes to understanding the new birth is to confuse your spiritual birth with your physical one. That's a mistake that Nicodemus made in chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus tells him that he needs to be born again, and Nicodemus asks the question, well, then how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Sounds like a ridiculous question, doesn't it? You see, he wasn't thinking spiritually. He was thinking physically. And that's, it's this idea that a person can be reborn through another human being. According to Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is found in the blood, but the life of the spirit is found elsewhere. So our spiritual rebirth has nothing to do with our physical post-birth bodies. In fact, it has nothing to do with our bloodlines at all. Spiritual rebirth is of the spirit. It, it doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter if your daddy was a preacher or not. Nothing about your physical birth will make you spiritually right with God. That's a problem for some folks. In fact, many of the Jews still get hung up on this idea today. They told Jesus that they were good to go because they were children of Abraham. And instead, he pointed out that they were children of the devil. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. They say, we're good. We're children of Abraham. He says, no, you're not. You're children of the devil. Because spiritual rebirth is not of blood. It's of the spirit. That's the first mistake. Next, he says that we are not saved by emotion. 
He says, nor of the will of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the clue to its meaning is found in the usage of that word flesh. James Montgomery Boyce points out that the New Testament uses the word flesh to signify all that we are in terms of our natural appetites. In other words, the will of the flesh is tied to our desires. So John is saying we can't desire ourselves into being born again. We can't. You can't make it happen by wanting it. You can't will it into being. H.A. Ironside likens this idea to an unemployed man who decides to become a soldier. So he walks into an army surplus store and he buys a uniform. He puts it on, he starts walking down the street thinking, I'm a soldier. After a while, someone stops him and says, how did you become a soldier? To which the man replies, I bought the uniform and now I am one. Ironside then asks this question, does that make this man a soldier? Of course not. He still has to enlist. No more than buying a t-shirt makes you part of the band. In the same way, no one can simply become a Christian by saying, from now on, I'm going to be a Christian. You can't make it happen. You, you can't work yourself up into an emotional frenzy and say, aha, you see, now I am saved because I have chosen to be saved or because I had this incredible experience at church last Sunday or I can point to this or to that and I wrote the, I wrote the date down in my Bible. It must be true. No, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, a lot of people look for emotional experiences to, to instigate and validate their salvation. So they exercise their feelings, they excite their passions, and, and they hope that a surge of emotions would somehow produce a new birth. But the Bible teaches no such thing. Look for it, I dare you. It's not there. What does the Bible say? It says, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, the giver of life, repent and believe, and he will give you a new birth. A person can't become a child of God by emotional willpower any more than a person can become a child of God by holding on to their heritage or where they come from. That's number two. And then finally, we're not saved by effort. We're not saved by effort. He says, nor of the will of man. That's the power of positive thinking and the efforts of others. Listen, the pastor can't make you a Christian. Baptism can't make you a Christian. Communion can't make you a Christian. Church membership cannot make you a Christian. Look at the text. Even your own will isn't enough to make you a Christian. Again, no one can will you into the kingdom. God has to choose you before you could ever choose him. He has to birth you from above. He has to give you that new life before you can ever exercise it. Let me ask you this. How involved were you in your first birth? I mean, you were there, but how involved were you? How much did you help your mom in the process? Did you meet her in the middle? Did you come halfway? Was she thankful for the help that you provided on that day? If that's how our physical birth works, what makes you think that our spiritual birth would be any different? Listen, you can become a moral person. You can pursue good outcomes. You can accomplish incredible things by sheer willpower alone. 
but you can't save yourself and you can't force God to either. Now you might be thinking, that's a real bummer. I mean, why is verse 13 even here? I thought I was saved. I thought I was good to go. And I'm so proud of the fact that I chose Jesus. I received the gift when no one else would. And now you're telling me that my salvation has nothing to do with my estate, my emotion, or my effort? What gives? Well, take heart. Because verses 11 and 12 are still true. You must receive this Savior by believing in his name. But verse 13 is here to remind you that if you do believe, if you do believe, it's not because of you. It's because God has already taken the initiative to plant his divine life inside of you. You see, God isn't waiting for you to make the first move. You can't believe and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ without the Spirit's intervention. And as the text says, you must be born of God. You must be born again with a new heart and new desires to please God. And when that happens, when the Spirit rips the blinders off of your eyes, when the plugs fall out of your ears, and the freshly tilled soil of your heart receives the seed of the Word, when you finally comprehend the glories of the cross and the majesty of Christ, and it crushes you to a place where you abandon sin and you grab onto Him, when that happens, please, friend, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't give yourself a high five. Don't receive the credit because God will share none of it with you. All we bring to the table is our sin and our need. If you want to ruin Christmas, if you want to celebrate this week in the worst way possible, it's easy. All you have to do is reject God's gift, refuse to believe, or receive the credit. Well, if these are the steps to ruining Christmas, to becoming a spiritual Scrooge, then friends, we need to find our safety in the other direction. We need to receive, not reject. We need to receive God's gift of his son. We need to not be like the Jewish people or little Hans at Christmas. We need to receive this Savior. We, we can't afford to reject God's gift. We need to receive him. And that means that we need to resolve ourselves to believe this book, to, be, to believe everything that we know about Christ that we know is true, to believe to the hilt and to trust in his authority that he has made you a child of God. Don't refuse to believe. And then finally, we need to relinquish all credit for receiving the gift he deserves all the glory, not us. We can't inherit it, we can't desire it, we can't will it into being. We must be born of God. Or to put a positive spin on the whole thing, we need to receive God's gift, resolve to believe, and then relinquish the credit. Receive God's gift, resolve to believe, and then relinquish the credit. That's what we do. Why? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth or as we like to sing this time of year veiled in flesh the godhead see 
Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to be born as a man, but then to die as the perfect sacrifice for sinners. God, I pray that this week, this Christmas season, as we celebrate that incarnation, that arrival of our Savior at his first coming, Lord, may we receive him. May we receive these truths. May we believe them to the hilt, to the uttermost, to the highest. May we throw ourselves into them full speed. And then, Lord, may we not receive the credit for any of it. May we instead turn around and say, not I, but Christ in me. It is only by the grace of God that any of us are saved. Lord, none of us deserve so great a salvation. And yet, you have condescended, you have loved us so much to have sent your son, and it pleased you to crush him on that cross for our sake. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not believed in this Savior, Lord, would you grip their hearts? Would you compel them to confess their sin to you, to repent of their sin, to believe to the hilt, to not reject God's gift? Lord, work in their hearts and bring them to saving faith today. Lord, again, we love you. We praise you. And we bless you this holiday season and beyond. Lord, may you be the focus and may we not ruin Christmas this year. We pray in your name. Amen.